how many, since that's on the screen, I'm going to use it. It's a good analogy for me. How many of you have seen those commercials that Verizon puts out where you, the, yeah, the guy driving around, he says, can you hear me now? Have you seen that one? Right? And so they got, they, 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 this is, uh, oh, they got it. So they, they have this dynamic where he, they send this guy around. He says, can you hear me now? And it's really to advertise their network, their ability to have communication happen uh, for people. And communication is a very big part of our society, and so they want to capitalize on that, that you can actually hear people and enjoy conversation with them. And maybe this is something they should share with their competitors that they go around and check these things. Just saying. But I, I have their competitor, and so I'm aware. From my drive from uh, home to work, I'm aware of three spots where I will drop a call. So I can be talking, hey, just so you know, I'm coming up. Uh, and I know the exact spot on the freeway the call is going to drop. And then I know exactly the spot on Artesia driving up the call is going to drop. And so I know where they're at. And if I, as the user, can know, you, you think they would figure it out and they would f- solve those issues, right? Just, just saying, right? It'd be nice. They'd figure those out. But we live in a world that's obsessed with communication. Uh, from cell phones, emails, blogs, websites, text messaging, physical, hard copy, marketing, advertising, so many different ways that people communicate and are communicated to in our culture. Uh, currently today, uh, Facebook just reported that one out of every 10 people in the world has a Facebook account, right? One out of 10 people in the world has a Facebook account. That's in a, a massive number. They're still working on Senior Pastor Zach, right? They're probably not going to get that, that his, his demographic of who he is. not going to happen. So much so that... Uh, I like technology. I love it. And uh, one time he walked into my office and he saw me having a stressful day. And he says, are you, are you okay? Well, no, no. It's just the computer's freaking out, trying to do some stuff. And it's just freaking out. And, uh, and he knows I like technology. And he's like, really? We, we buy you all this technology, Scott, because you say it's helpful to you. That it makes your life easier. But it seems that I'm not stressed and you are. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have the whole church's phone numbers in my phone, man. Come on. What do you got? You got a pencil? You have a pencil there? And so uh, so we always joke back and forth about the, the technological advances for communication. But uh, the reality is that sometimes these uh, communication devices can become a distraction. And they can t- suck large amounts of time uh, out of our lives to deal with them. And pull us away from this sense of human-to-human interaction. And even, even more so from our communication with God. We can get so uh, bogged down in our worldly communication that we forget that God desires to communicate with us, especially through His Word. So since the Bible is the primary way God communicates with humanity, uh, this morning I'd like to ask, answer two questions about the Scriptures. Where does our commitment to Scripture come from? And secondly, how can we trust the Scriptures completely? Or where does it come from, and how can we trust it completely? The goal of this message will be to strengthen uh, the believer's understanding of the doctrine of Scripture and provide for the unbeliever a framework for faith. We will accomplish this as we study what is termed as the centrality of Scripture for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to be a two-part series on Scripture. First week, centrality of Scripture for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The second week, next week, hope you join me again, is the sufficiency of Scripture for sanctification. And so I kind of did a wordplay there. Centrality of Scripture for salvation. Next week, sufficiency of Scripture for sanctification. And we'll work through that next week. So as we study this, we must remember that Scripture is not the only way that God speaks to humanity, but it's one way He does. And so the one triune God of the universe 
uh, wants a relationship with his creation. He wants to communicate with us so that we might know who God is and what he has done. Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal God to us. God reveals himself in two distinct ways that are theologically termed general and special revelation. General and special revelation. Now, general revelation is God revealing himself through creation and our conscience. Right? This may lead someone towards God, but cannot bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, for example, if we look at the earth, we can see that the earth is majestically made. You can look at the created order of God and say, this is amazing. Right? The, the statistical probability of this occurring through evolution are improbable. Right? You can look at the stars in place, perfectly placed where they are, the sun, the perfect distance from earth. All of those things can reveal God to us. The Bible records this with great regularity. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glories of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. When you thoughtfully look at the world, the Bible, the sheer amazing uh, laws of nature, right? No one's without excuse. Romans 1, 19 and 20 displays this for us. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Right? A great text talking about the general revelation of God. The second way that God communicates with his creation is special revelation. General revelation is through the created order and our conscience. The second one is uh, special revelation, God revealing himself through miracles, Christ, and the Bible. Miracles, Christ, and the Bible. Psalm 19.7, I think, displays this quite well. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You see, general revelation, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare. And then uh, special revelation, Psalm 19.7 says, uh, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the heavens can declare, but the word revives. They work harmoniously. General special relations work harmoniously together for our good and God's glory. Scripture is the revealed story of how God is working in and through time, throughout history, and is His story uh, for His creation uh, to His Son for His glory. The text we're going to study today uh, and the next two weeks is Paul... Uh, is dealing with Paul nearing the end of his life, literally weeks before he's killed for preaching the gospel. These are his final instructions to Timothy, a younger Christian whom Paul is instructing to understand the centrality of Scripture. And so where does our commitment to Scripture come from? The first thing that I want us to see, the first thing I want us to see is that believers trust the Word of God. Right? Believers trust the Word of God. Now, we trust the Word of God because it comes from God. That's really the ultimate reason. If you think about it this way, if you look at it uh, doctrinally, uh, doctrinally the, the doctrine of God, meaning who God is in His nature, right, in, in His nature, in His essence, who God is, the spoken Word of God, the, the, the Bible, that is part of who God is, part of His nature to communicate with His creation. And so therefore, you can't really just separate out and say, God's over here, the Bible's over here. Because the Bible is God's Word to humanity, they work together. And so as we read our text, let's keep that in mind, that believers trust the Word of God because it comes from God. 
Open your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll start reading at verse 10. The text states, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconian, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Right? In this text, Paul is essentially displaying for Timothy. He's saying, You've seen the life I've lived and the ministry that I've done. And I, my trust and reliance on God. And he's saying, there's nothing in it for me. I am going to die. Right? Timothy is aware that this is going to happen to Paul. He's been beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead, hated, despised. Right? In a mere few weeks, he'll die. Paul's saying, you can trust me because I'm willing to die for this message. So, uh, um, point A is that the ministry of Paul confirms the word of God. Right? It's not just that believers just trust the Word of God blindly, but the ministry of Paul confirms this for us. Right? Uh, and, and Paul's ministry is the text of Scripture. He's actually the uh, writer of the New Testament that wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. And so his writings confirm for us uh, the Word of God, the, his ministry. The first point is his teaching. Right? His teaching confirms this. And, I, and I, instead of quoting from him, let's, let's look at Peter. Peter talking about... Uh, Paul's writings. So we're going to look at 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 to see what Peter says about Paul's writings or his teaching. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And they do, and they do so with the other scriptures. See, Peter here is making some crucial statements about Paul's writings and the scriptures themselves. Let me highlight a few of those for you. I gave you a very small space to put four things underneath teaching. You have to squeeze four things in there. Sorry about that. My bad. So, the the new what he's saying is that the New Testament, along with the Old Testament, is scripture. Right? He's, he's stating this in this statement. He, he's basically saying that we see the apostolic writings. Uh, we're being added alongside the Old Testament canon as authoritative scripture. Verse 16 says, some people are twisting Paul's letters as they do with the other scriptures. Right? What other scriptures were there at that point except for the Old Testament? The word in Greek, graphe, is, occurs 49 times in the New Testament. And every single time that it's used, it's used to refer to the Old Testament writings. And so therefore, you can deduce that Peter is talking about the Old Testament when he, when he states this statement that all 49 times confirm that Peter is saying, hey, Paul's writings are the same equivalency and ilk and quality as the Old Testament. It's remarkable that Peter, a contemporary of Paul, somebody living at the exact same time as Paul, would make this statement about Paul's writings. Right? He would say, they're authoritative. And what, what more... Peter doesn't even try to defend this claim, right? It is in his mind as he's stating it as obvious. It, it's, it made a point of no contention in the churches at that time. Peter didn't need to defend it or convince the churches to believe it. Apparently, they already recognized, assumed, and treated Paul's writings this way. So when Peter refers in verse 15 to the wisdom given to Paul, 
he's referring to the divine inspiration of God. If he's qualifying Paul's writings as scripture, then he's then stating that his writings, if they're scripture, then they're divinely inspired, right? Second uh, Timothy three three sixteen says all scripture is God breathed, right? That God brings it to them. The second point is scripture can be hard to understand. Sometimes you can read, I can read, and we can say this is a challenging thing to understand. This concept is challenging. Christians throughout the centuries have taken great comfort in verse 16 because even Peter admits that sometimes Paul's writings can be challenging or difficult to understand. Right? Even Peter, the great apostle, first among equals, recognized that there's some challenging parts. Now, this doesn't mean that the Bible isn't clear. It just means that some points in it can be difficult. Uh, Christianity has always held to what's called the clarity of Scripture. This means that Scripture is clear. This means that if you hand somebody the Bible and they read it, that the, the message of salvation is clear to them. If you read the Old Testament, it talks about the prophecies of Christ. The New Testament, the fulfillments of Christ, that He is the fulfillment, that He is the Messiah. That is a clear message. And no matter uh, who reads it, they can understand that reality. And this is called the clarity of Scripture, right? But it doesn't mean that everything is equally easy to understand. Some parts of the Bible require study, just as Peter said about Paul. But on the flip side of that, uh, even the hard parts have a true and right interpretation. And so uh, the third point in in there, it would say, even the hard parts have a right and wrong interpretation, right? Some things, uh, notice Peter didn't say, he didn't say this, Some things in Paul are hard to understand. So who am I to say what's right and what's wrong? All of us have our own individual interpretations. No, he says, some things are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Right? Peter didn't think just because it's hard that we couldn't find a right answer to the problem. Some Christians are just intellectually lazy and just say, ah, whoever, whatever you want to believe, just believe it. It doesn't matter. Right? They they would dishonor the word of God with their quick surrender to the land of who knows, who cares. If it's not about salvation, who cares, right? Understanding the doctrine of election can be challenging. And so people give up. Peter, on the other hand, is not afraid to say that the presence of hard text does not preclude there to being a right and wrong interpretation. The fourth point in here is some wrong interpretations are actually dangerous, right? They can actually be dangerous, uh, he actually says that, that it, it can uh, be dangerous for them. There's certainly room for disagreement on some things, but there are also truths that cannot have disagreement. We see clearly in Romans 14 that this is the, the, the reality. But some issues, errant interpretations are not just wrong, they're dead wrong. Right? False teachers in Peter's midst were twisting the Scriptures, as he says, to their own destruction. They were quoting Scripture, but not quoting it well. Our text this morning, Second Timothy Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, repeat this dynamic. I'll read it to you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a sober reminder for Timothy. He's going into ministry and Paul gives him a sober reminder. Look, people will take the Bible and they will do crazy things with it and you need to defend against that. It's better to be persecuted for godliness than to enjoy pleasure for godlessness, essentially what he's stating here. And the second way on there, 
Second way, uh, the ministry of Paul confirms the word of God is his conduct, right? The conduct of Paul confirms the word of God. If you just get a holistic example of Peter's um, Paul's ministry and how he conducts himself, how he encourages the churches to be faithful to the word of God, how he goes around from church to church and edifying them, clarifying for them, helping them see error, right? When we took communion, we saw uh, an example of Paul correcting the Corinthian church on how they dealt with communion. His conduct and how we dealt with his ministry confirms the word of God that it's, that it's accurate, that there's a true and right um, interpretation of it so his conduct and how he goes about his ministry confirms it as well the third is his aim of life our text actually says those three things starting in verse 10 it says you however have followed my teaching which we, we already addressed my conduct and my aim in life those three aspects in verse 10 i'm walking through those aim in life the niv says his purpose his purpose and aim in life the word aim kind of symbolizes that it has a focused directive right? His ministry had a focused directive, right? Paul states, I have come to you not trying to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, right? It's a wonderful clarity in that. He's saying, I know Christ and I know him crucified. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Uh, Paul's ministry is pointed, is directed at honoring Christ and the Word of God. Not only is ministry confirms the word of god but his very life confirms this as well if you read through the new testament you can see the life of paul you can see the very heart of paul to live out the gospel right that he struggles with sin and fights through it he's willing to overcome difficulties in his own self and and honor god right, there's three of those our, our text says that you've seen my faith my patience my love and steadfastness right his faith 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2 talks about that. Secondly, his love, his love for others displays his commitment to the word of God. Romans 9, 3, I think is the best display of this dynamic of Paul's love for others displaying his trust in Christ and the word of God. Romans 9, 3, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's as if Paul is saying, look, if I have to be accursed and cut off, but this section here could be saved, so be it. That is an immense love to see someone stating. That's an understanding of the, the gospel message of having a desire for the salvation of others. That's a passion, right? And we see that love through that. Patience and perseverance. He persevered through great difficulty, yet trusted the truth of God and his word. If you can, can understand that, right? His perseverance and his patience with, with this process. When, when somebody is persecuted, but they hold true to that, that's confirming their beliefs, right? You say, he's willing to endure all of that for this, this belief in this, right? We go great lengths for things in our lives. We're willing to work hard to achieve things. And, and Paul is willing to go great lengths for the gospel. My, the, my favorite passage for this I think that displays it so vividly would be Acts, uh, the book of Acts 14, 8 to 23. Now, this is a crazy story. So let me, I'm going to talk you through it instead of reading it. So here's what happens. 
And actually, Paul meets Timothy in this account. So it kind of ties into our passage really well. Uh, so Paul is preaching in this town. He's preaching to them. And he actually prays for a guy. And the guy is healed miraculously. The town realizes, wow, something's amazing about this guy. We actually believe he's God. And so they say, you're God. And they start to elevate him. And they start to say, we want to elevate you as a king of our town. And they're going to elevate him as God. They're really excited about Paul and what he's doing and the ministry he has. And at that point, let's stop for a second. Many people would say, hey, I'm going to go with this. Yes, I think I need this. I need some green M&Ms. And I could use some palm branches, right? People might just go with it, right? The evil and imposters that we talked about in our passage, they might have just gone with that. No, but Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not God. Let me tell you about the God that I serve. And he preaches the gospel to them. And at that point, they decide they, they don't like to hear about Jesus Christ and they stone him. So within a matter of minutes, they wanted to call him God for the miraculous signs that he performed. And then they want to stone him for him saying that I'm not God, but Jesus Christ is. And let me tell you about him. So they actually stone Paul for this. They stone him. They believe he's dead. So they drag him to the edge of their town. And they throw him out of the town and they, and they, they leave him there for dead. And the text actually says when he regained consciousness. So Paul Comes to at some point, right? Wakes back up. Wipes his forehead. Realizes he's just fully covered in blood. And that he was just knocked unconscious by stones. And they thought to death. And then the text says that he goes back to the town and preaches more intently than before. Now, that wouldn't have been me, right? (laughs) If that would have happened to me, I would have followed the other passage that says that if they don't accept the word of God, that shake, you know, dust off your heels and leave. Right? That would have been me that would have said, well, let me think about this. First, they tried to make me God. That, that was just miserable. And then they stoned me for telling them about the true God. That doesn't make sense. Forget them. I'll find a new town. Right? But his passion and his perseverance and his patience with people, that showed patience. I didn't have that kind of patience. And he did. So his patience, perseverance display his personal commitment to the word of God. And he's not the only one who did this. All the disciples and the apostles died horrible deaths to take this message to others. Histor- uh, historical Christians throughout history have also done this. Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli uh, actually um, was persecuted for this as well. He wanted to take the Bible and translate it into Swiss and German. And in this process, uh, he was killed for this, just for translating it. Right? Uh, Jonas... Jonas Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Press, a Christian brother, uh, created the Gutenberg Press to print Bibles, to make it go into uh, other languages or even his own language, and yet he was persecuted for that. William Tyndale was trying to translate the Bible into English, and in this process, he had to translate it on the run. He was hiding in holes and hiding, translating, giving sections, and they would take the sections back, and he'd write more sections, translating into English, and eventually they did catch him, and they killed him for that. Right? The, the Puritans, this weekend, celebrate 4th of July, Independence Day, and the pilgrims and the Puritans came to America so they could read the Bible freely. That's why they came here, right? And they can worship God freely. They came for that. The Reformers, Luther and Calvin, they had the Reformation era brought apart this thing. One of my favorite books is called the, uh, Christianity's Dangerous Idea. And essentially, the Bible was only held by popes. And the Bible was very expensive. You imagine it had to be handwritten. It would take months and months to hand write a bible and so one person could own it and so therefore the, the pope would own the bible and that and the church had one copy and so if somebody wanted to read the bible in a particular town they would have to pay a great fee to do that to touch it and to read it and so this this idea 
to get the Bible and allow it to be in other people's hands kind of confirms the priesthood of all the believers. But they say it's Christianity's dangerous idea because the reality is once you put the Bible in everybody's hands, your interpretations, the quantity of possible ter- interpretations you have exponentially increases by the number of people who have it in their hand. So that's why it's called Christianity's dangerous idea. I mean, here's Luther uh, addressing the Roman Catholic Church uh, when, uh, when defending the writings of Scripture, okay? He says, Unless I am convinced by proofs of Scripture or plain and clear reason and arguments, I cannot and will not retract, for neither is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I could do no other, right? He was standing firm and saying, Look, I'm teaching you these things, and unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand. I'm willing to die for it, right? Willing to die for it. So where does our commitment to Scripture come from? It comes from a great trust in it, a great affirmation that it is true. Why did Paul go through all this difficulty for the Word of God? Because he believed Scripture was truth. He's encouraging Timothy to have confidence in the Word of God. The Bible is not some fantasy. It is truth. And many are willing to die for its defense. The Bible was written by the inspiration of an enabling of God. Jesus himself predicts this dynamic. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, Paul says, We impart this word not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Again, in... Um, oh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, For all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting, right? This dynamic that Paul is, uh, Paul is saying, I'm not telling you something that I've learned or made up. I'm telling you something that God revealed to me through the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, another example would be 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? This dynamic that the Bible is inspired by God. It is uh, written by God. In the days of the prophet, Pro- Protestant Reformation, this commitment to Scripture led to the doctrine of what's called sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that Scripture is our highest authority. We believe this. We believe that Scripture is our metaphorical supreme court, our highest authority. We're a Bible-believing church, Bible-studying, and Bible-preaching church. The Scripture alone, sola scriptura, right, is our highest authority. There are points of lesser authority, and I want to work through those for a second. Let me distinguish sola scriptura, right, from solo scriptura. Solo scriptura is that scripture alone is our authority, meaning that no other information is valuable. Right? We don't believe that. We believe that scripture alone is our highest authority. The scripture, for example, doesn't tell us how to perform open heart surgery, right? Um, for example, uh, after Friday night service, I went home and I went to bed and I was thinking about this, this point and I actually started dreaming that I was performing open heart surgery on somebody. And I was going through this dream and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm doing this with, with skill and it's, it's going so well and everything's working well. And I, I know what I'm doing. I'm stitching this piece up here and I'm attaching this back here. And then I wake up. Nope. Nope. I did not do that. I don't have the skill for that, the knowledge for that, the ability to even come close to that. Do not give me a knife. I will even butcher your piece of steak. Right? And so, um, that, that was a dream. If I want to learn to do something like that, through general revelation, God gives us a mind, right? 
And that mind is amazing and it's wonderful. And the synapse firings are um, just in the scientific realm have no explanation for how the brain can work as perfectly as it, it can. But yet, um, and God can use the mind to allow us to learn things for his glory as his creation um, can express creativity. And so we can learn things, right? You can learn how to repair a car. My, my, uh, yesterday, on Saturday, I, I started, was working on my wife's car. Now, don't think I'm, I'm amazing. I have very skills that, that are confined to this space here. The only reason I even, even attempted to repair her car is her car was saying hello to people before she saw them. Right? It was down the street. And I realized it's about time that I changed the brakes in her car. So I took care of that for her. Right? But that's the scope of my skills. That one skill that I have to repair brakes is as far as my skill goes. And if I want to learn other skills on repairing cars, I need to refer to a training ma- manual or ask people for help. I actually even post a status on Facebook. If you have skills, I'm going to change these things. Right? My house, 9 a.m. Uh, and I tagged a buddy of mine named John Cavuto, who has great skills, tagged John Cavuto. And he's like, okay, I'll come over and help you out. Right? We, we, um, the scriptures don't tell us how to repair a carburetor. And that's the result of general revelation. Simply say that we can learn things. And God has given us wisdom and a mind. But those submit to the supreme truth of scripture. Right? Sola scriptura. With this knowledge and trust in Scripture, the first aspect, our first point, was believers trust the Word of God. The second point is believers must be faithful to the Word of God. Not only do we have to trust it and say, oh yeah, this is true, right? This is true, but it doesn't change my life, right? Just like I can believe, I can read a, a textbook on um, open heart surgery. I can say, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's the right way to do it, but it doesn't affect me. It doesn't, I could still die of heart failure if I don't do anything about it. And so, secondly, believers must be faithful to the Word of God. Return with me to our text, 2 Timothy 3.14. 3.14 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Right? You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Right? Uh, continue in what you've learned. He's saying, hey, stay holding true to that which you've been convinced of in the past. Being been convinced of. That supports our first, first point. But he's saying, continue in that. Be faithful to that. Don't forget that. You've been convinced of the truth of this. Now be faithful to it. I want us to notice there's a contrast between 13 and 14 here. The contrast is, in, in verse 13, we see the evil people and the imposters. It's that they go from bad to worse, and they, they come out with these crazy interpretations. But he's saying, Timothy, right, you stay firm in the Word of God. You don't graduate from God's Word. You don't treat God's Word as first-grade elementary learning and move on to grander, more glorious learnings, right? No, God's Word is truth. It is sola scriptura. It is the absolute authority. It is the supreme court in your spiritual life. Verse 14 says, But as for you, continue what you learned. Right? Continue is the opposite of advance in this text, in this passage. Continue, he's saying, continue to, to stay, to remain, to abide. In verses 14b and 15, Paul tells us what he has in mind here. Right, knowing from whom you have learned these things, and that from childhood that you have known the sacred writings. He's giving us a clue here. He says the sacred writings that sh- that he should continue in. That tells us that it's the word of God he's talking about. What is he continuing in? What is he continuing to trust in? What does he firmly believe? It's the sacred writings. It's the scriptures. 
That's what he's telling him to hold firm to. That he firmly believes it, as verse 14 states. The evidence for the authority of the Bible is seen in a little chart in there. That the, the Bible is uh, proved to be more historically accurate from the original manuscripts than any other historical writing throughout history. That there's more evidence for its reliability. When uh, historians are studying literature and they're trying to determine, is this document trustworthy? They like to see the original manuscripts, the length of time between the original manuscripts and the earliest copy that they have. And that's how they determine whether something is reliable. So the reliability of the Bible over any writing in history uh, is, un- is amazing. Just look at Caesar's Gaelic Wars, right? written in 58 uh, B.C., the earliest copy is 900 A.D., 950-year time lapse, and the number of copies, they have about 9 to 10 copies of this document. Right? So when they're determining, is what we have today accurate with what was originally written? And they're comparing against, and they're working with nine copies to, work, to, to figure this out, whether it's accurate or whether through time uh, and the transmission of information, if things changed. If you look at the New Testament, right, written uh, A.D. 40 to 100, uh, the earliest copy that they have is AD 130. The full New Testament is about 350. It's about a 300-year time gap if you go with the furthest point. But there's over 20,000 copies of this, handwritten copies, manuscripts, that they can use to verify the accuracy of the information tr- uh, transmission over time. And so when people say, I-, I don't know if I could trust the Bible, you know, these modern versions we have versus the original, can- is it trustworthy? Well, the problem is, when you, when you say that as, a, as somebody who's a secular historian, the problem is that they, they, they would have to discount every other uh, writing in history before they can discount the Bible because the Bible has um, significantly more evidence than any of the others. And the, the dynamic here is that not only the manuscripts, but the archaeology of the biblical events uh, helps to confirm it, to firmly believe it. The prophecy, over 200 prophecies just about Christ in the Old Testament are uh, fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament, right? That, that's the statistical probability of that. MAPS, manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, statistics, all four of those confirm or f- help us to firmly believe in the Bible. Well, then you can get to somebody who might say, well, you know, that, that's interesting information, but we're just mere mechanical machines and there's no absolute truth or moral absolutes and, you know, we're just synapses firing and, and you can't make absolute true statements like that. And I say, really? That's quite interesting. So there's no moral absolutes. There's nothing that's true throughout all culture and time. No. Is it right and wrong? No, no. Whatever you do is right for you and all that. That's fabulous. Well, it feels good for me to slap you. Right? And then he says, hey. And I said, can I do that again? I'd like to. And he says, no, you can't do that again. Why? It's wrong. Ah, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? On, on, on what grounds is it wrong for me to do that to you? Because I actually think it's right for me to do that to you. But yet, in his system, as mere mechanical machines, there is no right and wrong. The second point that he makes is not just that he firmly believes it. He actually says, um, from those you learned it, right? But as for you, continue what you learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, as he concludes verse 14. The quality of his teachers. Obviously, Paul can be referring to himself here a little bit, because Paul did encourage Timothy along. But even more so, Paul is talking about his, uh, Timothy's parents. Now, you might think Timothy must have had some amazing parents. Actually, half that is correct. His dad was a Greek, did not believe in, in the God of the Bible. 
probably worshipped Zeus and probably read Caesar's Gaelic Wars instead of the Bible. But his mother was a wonderful believer. And the text actually states that about her. And so what Paul is doing here is he's reminding Timothy, not only do you have this firm belief in the Word of God, but you have this great foundation of it from your mom teaching it to you. This is a great encouragement to single moms here. Right? But it's not letting dads off the hook. How much more confident would, would uh, Timothy be in the Word of God if he had a God-fearing father who taught him the Scriptures? Uh, the Bible actually records that Timothy had a little bit of a timid streak, and maybe he would have been more confident if he would have had a father who taught him these things and believed what he believed. Right? The challenge of living in a home with one parent believing one thing and another parent believing another thing could create a lot of difficulty for somebody. And so as dads, is a, wor- a, a word to us to make sure that there's unity in our home. Verse 15 gives us the clue from childhood. You know in the sacred writings. And uh, in Acts 16.1, it tells us that Timothy was a son of a Jewish woman, a believer, but his father was a Greek. In 2 Timothy 1.5, it says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. Oh, how wonderful, right? She's named in the Bible. How sweet is that, right? And your mother Eunice, and I'm sure is in you as well. These are the two people Paul has in mind in verse 314 when he says, continue in these things, knowing from whom you learned them. In other words, uh, one reason Paul, uh, one of the reasons that Timothy should hold fast to the scriptures is that his mother and grandmother were the kind of believers whose lives gave strong credibility of what they taught him. The aim is to be the kind of church today that builds the kind of parents and the kinds of grandparents that develops the kind of young person that would trust the Word of God. No matter what. No matter what. That's the reason. That's the reason Timothy should continue in the things he has learned. The other reason has to do with the good effect the Scriptures can have upon his life. And verse 15 displays that for us. Scripture not only is truth, but it can transform. And the good effect that it can have on his life, we see in our point number three, the Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation. Let's read verse 15 together. And from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. Right? As we read the Word of God, as we talk about the clarity of Scripture, it can reveal to us who God is and what He has done and make us wise for salvation. The effect the Word of God can prove to do much in the life of a person who's humble and willing to let the work of the Spirit transform their soul. Martin Luther says this very clearly when he says this statement. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. Right? That's because Martin Luther had an understanding. He knows that if he's in communication with God and His Word, the Bible can speak truth into his life and transform his soul. He knows that the Bible has feet, it runs after him. That the, the moral truths that are presented in the Bible will, will haunt him and chase after him to change his life and honor God with his life. And it has hands that lays hold of him. It grips his heart and his mind to say, I need to obey this. If I believe it as truth, I should live it out in my life. Right? Because there's no other salvation from sin and guilt and condemnation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. 
Our text says the Word of God can make you wise for salvation. How? Through Jesus Christ. The, the Bible, the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, the, their purpose is ultimately to reveal Christ. Old Testament prophesies the Christ. The New Testament has the fulfillments of Christ. The, the biblical message is Christ. And there is no other authority besides the Scripture to show you who Christ is and to give you His Word. So don't leave the Bible. Don't graduate from God's Word. This process is justification. The process by which the righteousness of Jesus Christ is reckoned to us and makes us wise for salvation. The righteousness is not earned or retained of any effort of the saved. Justification is instantaneous occurrence with the result being eternal life. It is based completely and solely upon Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary work of atonement on the cross and is received by grace through faith alone. Not of works, but by the sheer grace of God. The word of Scripture makes us wise unto salvation through Christ. Why do we study it? Because it's trustworthy and it can affect our lives. Sola Scriptura, the centrality of Scripture for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And why do the Scriptures have this power to do this? We'll see that next week when we study verses 16 and 17 on the sufficiency of Scripture. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for the opportunity today to trust in Your Word. And not only that, to be faithful to it. Lord, we pray that this text of Scripture will confirm in us a desire and an understanding to trust Your Word and be faithful to it. Lord, as so many have gone before us and many have died for the proclamation and the defense of Your Word, we pray that we too would lay hold of the message that we would not graduate from God's Word but we would bring glory to you in how we understand it and how we live it. In Jesus' name, amen.